0: What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to World History Class with Mr. Lutz. Uh, So, today we're going to move beyond the quote unquote new world, even though it's not really that. That is the world of the Aztecs and Incas that we've last discussed. And we're going to return back to some familiar stomping grounds in China where we're gonna take a look at the Sui, the Tang, and the Song dynasties. And our focus today in particular is going to be on the development of their imperial governments, uh, the commercial growth of China during this era, and the development of culture regarding urban life and religion. And finally, we'll talk about some some, uh, social changes that we encountered during this time period. Okay, folks, so there's a new game in town um, regarding how I plan to share the key concept connections. So rather than reading them word for word on the podcast, what I'm deciding to do is to generally mention the key concept. Uh, In this case, the first one that we're going to discuss is probably the one you've heard most often in these last couple episodes, which is uh, good old 3.2.1. And then what I'm going to do is post on um, the blog, on the WordPress website, but also it'll show up, if you follow this on iTunes or whatever, it'll show up in the actual episode description, um, writing out the key concepts and maybe jotting down a few words about the things that the episode covered that relates if it's necessary to do. But for some of them, you'll just realize the connection without me providing any further written information because you'll have listened to the, uh, the podcast. So uh, let's start right away with the Sway Dynasty. So, where we last left off in China, we had been talking about the Han and the Han collapse in and about um, the 200s CE. And China's going to be in a period of, let's just say, general decentralization for give or take about the next 400 years until we're going to see a leader known as Wen Di emerge. So thanks to the military campaigns of Wendy, um, we're going to see the reestablishment of China's unification, and it's going to have a very uh, Qi Huangdi vibe to it. Um, he's going to ensure that, that China takes action to to make sure that there's going to be a strong centralized state that would be established. And they're going to do things like, you know, think back, and these, these should be familiar things to you that China's doing to reestablish that centralized state. Rebuilding defensive walls, ensuring that grain supply is going to be stabilized, um, raising taxes, requiring labor to help build up the infrastructure of the empire. So raising taxes and requiring labor not for the benefit of the selfish needs of the emperor and his court, but raising taxes and mandating that labor is going to be provided for the betterment of the empire. And specifically, the big project that comes out of the Sui dynasty is going to be what's called the grand canal and the grand canal is going to be built uh, as a linking body of water that is going to unite the northern and southern parts of the empire so so this is going to be a canal that runs from the north to the south and why this is so important for china is because if you were to look at a physical map of china what you would notice is generally speaking china's major rivers Uh, tend to flow from the highlands out in the western part of the country down and into the coastal lowlands of the east. So by building this Grand Canal, what you can do is you can ensure that the rice that's going to be produced in the southern part of the empire is now going to be able to be easily transported to the more populated areas to the north where it can feed that much larger population. And so the two major cities that you're going to see connected by the Grand Canal um, is going to be Hangzhou in the south. Now, that city is going to grow over time. Actually, much later in this period, it'll become a much more significant city, especially like in the times of Marco Polo. And then the city of Chang'an in the north. And we'll talk about both of those cities, specifically Chang'an, a little bit more later on in the episode. But upon completion of this canal, we're talking about a man-made body of water that is over 1,200 miles long. Just stop and pause for a second and just realize the enormity of the the amount of laborers that you're going to need to build a 1,200-mile-long canal that is going to be so pivotal to helping unite the northern and southern parts of the empire in a way like they've never been before. You know, and with that being said, though, these massive labor projects like the Grand Canal and others, um, they're going to require a high price to be paid by both taxes and conscripted or recruited labor. And not to mention, the Sui dynasty is going to be more active in military campaigns, especially with the Koreans. So they're going to be requiring soldiers um, like we haven't really seen the centralized state requiring before. So eventually, uh, the people of China are going to grow tired of the high cost that these programs require. This is going to lead to some rebellions throughout the empire, and eventually the assassination of the last Sui Emperor in 618 CE. And so the collapse of the Sui is going to bring us immediately into the uh, the Tang Dynasty, and it's going to be through the actions of the second emperor, known as Tang Taizong, who's going to set the stage for this dynasty to be able to reign over China for the better part of three centuries, folks. Um, and what makes his reign, uh, Tang, Tang Taizong's reign, so successful is due to maintaining taxes at a low rate while also requiring what's called corvée labor, which we've already seen is basically being um, state-mandated labor, so you have to work on behalf of the state. Um, he's going to bring an end to banditry. He's going to emphasize confusion values really be instilled back into all facets of Chinese life once again. And I gotta stop and say, um, Traditions and Encounters, the, the, the secondary book that we're using, um, at least in 2018, if this is gonna be airing in 2019 and later on, our primary book, it does a really fantastic job of analyzing why the Tang Dynasty is able to succeed for so long. Uh, there's a quote in particular that they say, um, and, I'll, and I'll read it to you here. It's quote, three policies in particular helped to explain the success of the early Tang Dynasty. Uh, maintenance of a well articulated transportation and communications network distribution of land according to the principles of the equal field system and reliance on a bureaucracy based on merit and that's the end of the quote and i'm like finishing the quote and i'm realizing that i'm pronouncing sometimes tang sometimes Tong, and that's not me like trying to play both sides i just subconsciously do that so uh yeah just just go with it But to go back into that quote, um, so the first thing they mentioned uh, transportation and communications network. So, for transportation and communication, um, the Tang Dynasty is going to maintain throughout their empire state sponsored inns, a postal service, a courier network system that can help facilitate uh, the protected movement of not only goods, but also ideas and information throughout China. Secondly, the equal field system that was mentioned in that quote is a really um, major thing that is going to help prevent the landed aristocracy from gaining too much power as it had originally done during the times of the Han Dynasty. So this equal field system, um, basically what you get is land is going to be distributed based on family needs and how productive the land was. So if, if you have two families that, that need equal amounts of food from the land, but you have less productive land going to one family, more productive land going to another family, that family with the less productive land is probably going to get more because they can't harvest as much food per acre. Um, But the important thing here is that upon the death of the landowner, what's going to happen is only one-fifth of that land will be guaranteed to go to the surviving family members. And the rest has the potential of being redistributed amongst the population as needed. So basically, it's this continual redistribution of land based on need uh, once the the owner of the land passes away, it sounds great, and for a while it can be. But this system is going to start to experience strains, and I'm sure you guys could think, you know, if you stop for a second, and as I slow down for a second, you can probably assume what some of the things that are going to undermine this system are going to be. China's growing population is going to make this a much more complicated thing to do. Of course, government corruption is going to undermine the effectiveness. And also too, this has got to be mentioned, Buddhist monasteries are going to be exempted from the system and that's gonna result in less and less land being available to be redistributed. And um, as the Han and the Sui dynasty had done, uh, the last part of this quote from Traditions and Encounters, the Tang are going to continue their emphasis on Confucian education And they're going to re-implement that idea that the best educated citizens can take the civil service exam in order to be able to enter into bureaucratic administration. So at this time, you know, it's not this equal opportunity type thing. On paper, it is really this is available for anyone from any class in China to be able to take, of course, males, um, because we are talking about such a heavily patriarchal society. and We'll get into that a little bit more. For better or for worse, you'll find out later. Talk about flood binding. Um, the system is going to be typically comprised of members of China's aristocratic class. But over time, as education is going to expand throughout the country, you do start to see some lower class members of China included in the bureaucracy. But yeah, China's bureaucracy is going to grow in size well past what the Han had achieved. And the scholar officials are going to be really highly regarded as what are called Jinxi, which are the presented scholars um, or distinguished scholars. And these Jinxi are often going to wear the finest clothing, have access to the best goods and services that China has to offer. Their reputations are are known far and wide as being um, top rate in Chinese society. In fact, my recommendation that I'll share with you later, I watched a documentary, which I'll recommend to you later, where um, this this family in uh, this rural town in China still has a sign hanging in their family home from their ancestor from this era, who was of pretty um, ordinary origins and came to become a Jinxi. And, and there's a sign that they hang on their house that says basically like Jinxi, um, implying that there is a member of the presented scholar class that lives at the home, and that sign still remains in their house today. That, that blew my mind seeing that they still had that all these hundreds of years later. So, all good things in China must come to an end. Thanks a lot, dynastic cycle. And so in the 8th century, what we're going to end up seeing is during the reign of the neglectful Emperor Zhuanzong, The An Lushan Rebellion is going to break out and severely weaken the Tang Dynasty for the long term. Now this revolt isn't really long lasting, but in order to defeat the rebels, the Tang have to create military alliances with a group of uh, nomadic Turks called the Uyghurs who are in the western part of the empire, And, and there are still Uyghurs in western China today. Now, the problem with that is that eventually the capital city, Chang'an, as well as another city called Luoyang, uh, they're both going to be sacked by the Uyghurs, basically as retribution or kind of their pay for the military support in putting down the An Lushan Rebellion. So this event is going to mark a turning point in which the Tang are never really going to ever be able to effectively deal with Turkish nomadic groups again for the rest of their history. Um, So for the following decades, Tang's imperial authority is just going to continually unravel at the hands of regional military leaders. So by 907, their dynasty is going to come to an end and devolve into that kind of fragmented warring states kind of type era. We'll call it a warlord era. So we get our last dynasty of this period. Following the Tang and this decades-long war era, warlord era, you're going to have the Song Dynasty who emerges as the force to reunite China, albeit with less of an emphasis on the military aspects of society, they are going to place a significant emphasis on expanding the bureaucracy and the economy of China. So with this bureaucratic expansion, um, it's going to be due to the Song Emperor Taizu. And the Song Emperor is going to expand Confucian education, is going to accept more candidates from the civil service exams to be brought into the bureaucracy. And yeah, this this bureaucratic expansion is going to cause economic problems for the empire as well, because not only do you have just more officials, you have more well-paid officials. And so any revenue that the Song are going to be generating is inevitably going right back into paying this enormous amount of officials that they have. So when more revenue is going to be needed, taxes are going to go up, and you're going to get peasant revolts that are going to come out of the frustration with increasingly higher taxes. And, and China's bureaucracy is so large that and so all-encompassing that they are going to have bureaucrats Running the military. And so I'm sure you can probably imagine or take a logical guess that someone who's well versed in Confucian values, they might not be able to. Just going to guess here. They might not be able to defeat these nomadic warlords who have spent their life serving and leading in armies like all the time. Um, yeah, it's just not a good matchup. So as a result what we're going to see is the northern border of the Song Empire in constant conflict with nomadic groups uh one of them called the Khitan a second one called the Jurchens and they only avoid constantly invading China because they're being paid tribute by the Song to prevent exactly this but eventually the Song capital city of Kaifeng is going to be invaded by the Jurchen in 1127 So the Song are going to flee to the south, and they're going to establish their new capital city at Hangzhou. And in 1127, with this flight to the south, we're going to see now the beginning of what is called the Southern Song Dynasty. And this is going to stick around until it's overtaken by another nomadic group. Uh, You know them. You love them. You've got a lot more to learn about them. It's going to be the Mongols, and they'll be led this time by not Genghis, but by his grandson, Kublai Khan in the year 1279. So we're moving past kind of that political timeline that I just gave you there, dynasty, 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 and we're gonna move into some of the different themes that are coming through in this time period uh, around the world, let alone in China specifically. So the first thing that we'll talk about is the urbanization that we're seeing in China. Um, so as we saw in Western Europe, you, you have this economic resurgence uh, in, during the high middle ages, But it was preceded by it needed an agricultural revolution in order for that economic resurgence to take place. And this is because the agricultural development leads to that population increase, which means cities grow. And now you have a population that can engage in a variety of jobs to meet those demands of this increasingly larger and complex society. So China's population growth, um, their agricultural development comes as a result of this strain of rice called champa rice and this rice is native to actually not china but vietnam and it's going to enter into china's agricultural and dietary scene as the military forces of the tang dynasty had moved into that region of southeast asia why this rice variety is so um important and i guess so so important to let's say expanding the dietary um, supplement of the chinese population is because you can get two harvests per year from this particular strain of rice and thus feed more people. So cities are going to expand tremendously during this era throughout China. Uh, Chang'an is going to become the most populated city in the world during this period. And cities like Chang'an are going to pop up throughout China and they're going to feature restaurants, theaters, markets, taverns, music halls, you're going to see different types of stores that emerge, which will be specializing in the sale of all different types of specific goods, uh, among lots of other different types of things that are featured in, in, in the hundreds in these different cities. And these cities also become centers for the arts uh, as paintings and poetry will experience their golden age in China during this time. And so um, the abundant food supplies are also going to lead to the emergence and growth of different industries and technology. Uh, Tang artisans are able to refine their pottery producing techniques and create the first pieces of porcelain. Huge development in Chinese history here. Porcelain being these lacquered, um, artistically finished pieces of pottery that is going to be mimicked by the Abbasids and going to be traded all throughout Afro-Eurasia. Iron production will boom during the Song era. They begin to use uh, a different fuel from coal that's going to help burn hotter fires and create steel weapons and tools. Uh, Daoist alchemists are going to at this time basically stumble into the invention of gunpowder when they realize that a combination of ingredients lead to some pretty undesirable burns and explosions, but Throughout the process, over time, it's going to be developed into some massive weapons technologies. But it must be stated that Song China does not really develop these weapon technologies all that much. Um, they have some rockets and things like that. But later on, groups in the Middle East and Europe, as, as they learn about this, this gunpowder technology, they'll really start to harness it and refine it due to the amount of warfare that they're really experiencing during their time. So you're also going to have the invention of block and movable-type printing in China, the first time ever in the entire world. Um, block printing being invented in the Tang era and movable-type printing being invented during the Song era. So block printing just involves a solid um, one-piece block of wood to which ink is applied and then transferred to paper, whereas movable-type, you're taking lots of different characters that can be arranged in all these different manners and, and orders on a frame, and then inked and transferred to paper. And these printing techniques are going to help to spread Buddhist and Confucian texts, poetry, as well as agricultural practices that can help improve productivity. Um, So we're talking, you know, again, expanding things. So as, as the economy expands, so then is going to be the development of a money economy in China. And so this rapid expansion of trade means that there's not enough coins to be circulated for trading. So as a result, uh, initially merchants and then the state are going to start taking these creative measures to help offset these problems created by the coin shortages. You get the invention of what's called flying cash during this time. And this is a way to deposit money in one city, and in exchange for the deposit in that money, you receive a paper confirming how much money you deposited in that place. So then you can travel to a different place throughout the country Uh, basically show that paper slip and withdraw that amount of money elsewhere in the country. So after merchants initially begin to print the first paper money, because this also happens too at this time, the state's going to take over this practice when the Song dynasty begins to print uh, their first paper currencies. And so they're immediately going to be regulating against counterfeit printing, and they're going to make common mistakes that we've seen in our recent historical past, such as the idea that printing more currency uh, than is actually what's available in their hard currency reserves. And uh, yeah, this is going to lead to all sorts of problems, specifically inflation, which is something we'll be tackling a lot throughout this course. So moving away from the economy and then kind of going towards um, the cultural features, specifically religion in China, uh, China becomes really cosmopolitan at this time. Because the collapse of the Han dynasty leads to people uh, breaking away from the state, I guess you could say, and kind of trying to find their spirituality as individuals, and as well as those commercial contacts bringing in people from all throughout Eurasia. And so Confucianism is going to fall out of favor, obviously, as the Han collapses, because the purpose of Confucianism, if you recall, was to foster above all else loyalty to the state. So when the state falls out of power, Confucianism falls out of prominence, and it's going to generally be replaced by Buddhism because Buddhism offers an individualized path to salvation. And that's going to appeal to people when when there's a a time of decentralization and it's a little bit more kind of a go at your own than what China has typically seen. So as the Tang Dynasty comes to power, China begins to extend, extend its trade contacts once again it begins to encounter more diverse religions. You're going to see Nestorian Christianity coming over the Silk Roads. Uh, Zoroastrians are going to be escaping Islamic persecution, heading east to China. And, of course, we're going to see the spread of Islam into the western parts of China um, and as far east as the city of Guangzhou. And, you know, the biggest thing, though, as I've mentioned before, it's going to be Buddhism that grows the most in terms of popularity throughout China. Uh, Mahayana Buddhism grows most popular because it offers the chance for enlightenment to all classes of people. Whereas the, the older, more traditional Theravada is only going to be kind of offering that chance for enlightenment for the monks. So with Mahayana Buddhism growing uh, during the Tang era, Buddhist monasteries grow in size thanks to the donation of land coming from wealthy Buddhists. And they're often going to donate, these Buddhists are going to donate their crops to the larger community. And you've got to stop and realize this for a second, that at times, Buddhism is going to be at odds with Chinese values. You know, as I say that, it's like, maybe hit pause for a second and and stop and think to yourself, why is Buddhism at odds with Chinese values? So do that and come back and I'll give you the answer. Alright, here we go, so Buddhism is going to be at odds with Chinese values because it teaches a life of simplicity, a life of celibacy, so refraining from sexual activity, and a life of introspection, self-reflection, whereas the Confucian tradition emphasizes relationships and raising families because those families then help look after your elders, think back, folks, to filial piety and how important that is in China. Also, the frustration with the tax exemption that Buddhist monasteries receive means the Tang-era Buddhists have so much land control. And so, yeah, those are the reasons why there's going to be this friction between Buddhism and traditional Chinese values. Nonetheless, you have monks like this one guy named Zuanzang, not the Emperor Xuanzong. Sorry, it's history. It's confusing at times. I didn't make it up. This monk, Zuan Zhang, travels to India to learn more about his faith, and he's going to use his newfound knowledge to try to help relate better to the unique needs of Chinese society and bridge those gaps that Buddhism has with China. Um, but by the mid-9th century, Tang emperors are going to start to clamp down on other religions, especially Buddhism. But it needs to be understood, Buddhism does not disappear from the Chinese landscape. Song emperors are going to continue a tradition of minimizing Buddhist influence by emphasizing greater support for Confucianism, but the familiarity that Confucians have with Buddhist traditions, it's actually going to lead to the emergence of what's called neo-confucianism, meaning new confucianism. So neo-confucianism is going to emerge during the Song era, and it's a philosophy that draws heavy influence from Buddhism without right without just saying outright that it is drawing influ- influence from Buddhism. Um, it starts to deal with questions that earlier Confucians did not bother with, but Buddhism had always inquired about. You know, think about it. Buddhism wants to know about what happens to our souls in the afterlife and what exists outside of the physical world. And if you recall, Confucianism really avoids those types of things. So Neo-Confucianism is going to take elements of Buddhist philosophies while claiming to reject Buddhism, and they're going to incorporate them into Confucian thought. Confused yet? Um, But that's all it really is. It's just trying to deal with the larger questions that people have and trying to offer explanations for them. So the last thing that I want to talk about in the key concept connections is with gender roles. Um, Patriarchy is going to really grow in prominence during this time due to the increased economic growth in China, as well as the prominence of Confucianism. Remember, as we see economic growth, we're going to see increasing labor division and Confucianism reinforces those values as well. Uh, This results in the practice of, I whispered it earlier, foot binding. So foot binding. Uh, Buckle up for the explanation. If you just ate, maybe you should come back a little later on. Let your food digest a little bit. Uh, take a break. Maybe catch a deep breath. Avoid Google image searching foot binding. That's my suggestion uh, before you listen any further. All right. So if you came back, here we go. So what foot binding is? And I think I think you do need to understand what it is in order to understand how how grossly patriarchal this is and how problematic it is. Um, this this practice involves purposefully breaking a woman's foot basically where the top of your foot meets your ankle and your toes so basically like smashing the bones with rocks stones something a blunt force object that can cause the bones to break that's not the worst part because following that you're going to take those broken bones and set the break so basically like re-reform it back to how you want it with a purpose of making the foot improbably small, so way smaller than, than it would typically be. So, I mean, folks, I'm not even kidding. We're talking like three inches probably on average. And you take that set broken tiny foot and you wrap that broken tiny foot into bandages to heal that break into that shape to create the much smaller foot. So, there's soap binding for you. Sorry. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. So, as you can imagine, this practice literally debilitates women and it makes them into nothing else other than status symbols for upper class men who can basically brag to all their friends that they can provide for women who were literally not able to be on their own feet working. And sadly what you're going to also see is this practice becoming a feature not only in upper class households but also in peasant households because parents do this in order to make their own daughters more attractive to wealthier potential suitors and this practice is going to exist in china for the rest of its imperial history um different different amounts of how how prevalent it's going to be but There are still women alive today who have bound feet. Uh, I'll actually share a story that a Chicago news station did back in February interviewing a Chinese woman who's in her 90s now, but had her feet bound by her mother when she was seven years old. So I'm realizing this episode is running a little bit long, so I'm going to pick things up here. Um, zooming in feature. I just wanted to spend some time talking about one of the coolest things I think you're going to look at all year in AP World History, and we're going to look at it in class, but it's this panoramic painting called Along the River during the Qingming Festival, and this painting's amazing. What it does is it captures the capital city of the song, Kaifeng, during the late 11th or early 12th century at the time of this tomb-sweeping festival, that's performed in order to uh, honor one's ancestors. So the focal point of this painting, it's a street scene and what it's trying to do is it's trying to capture all the different layers of urban life in China during this time. You'll see all the classes represented in all different types of activities, interacting with the city exactly as it would have looked during its heyday. Um, Starting from the far right of the painting, You'll see uh, the rural outskirts of the city where the agricultural work is being done to provide for those inns, the restaurants, the fast food stalls, the capital. You can notice inside of the city there's a whole range of goods for sale. There's, there's weapons in stores, instruments, fabrics, lots of other things. Um, one of my favorite parts of the scroll is this, this bridge, and it's, you'll be able to see it right away. It's called the Rainbow Bridge, and the scene that's unfolding at the Rainbow Bridge, you'll notice that there's a boat there With this really tall mast and it appears as if this mast is not going to be able to fit underneath the bridge and so standing on this bridge there's a whole crowd of onlookers and you can tell they're like yelling at the boat telling the people on board of the danger that lies ahead and like what's going to go down and there's like ropes being thrown down to them it's just like this whole kind of like crazy scene. But even as you go further into the, the the painting, there's all these different goods being loaded, offloaded. So it's showing all the influx of trade that's taking place at this time. I'll be attaching a link to a uh, high resolution, like annotated version of the painting. We'll look at it in class too, but you'll see it there. And it is, it's just incredible. <laughs> brief explainer today. Um, I think my suggestion for you would be that as you take notes in this chapter, it's a huge exercise in change and continuity over time. And so as you go from the Sui to the tang to the song, think about what's changed in China and what's not between these three dynasties. And I think all you need to do is really just kind of focus your reading in these terms and take your notes accordingly. And I think that's going to help really make this chapter meaningful for you. Finally today, my recommendation is going to be a uh, PBS video called The Story of China, particularly episode three. It's called The Golden Age. And again, I'll attach a YouTube link to the uh, blog post. It does a really good job of providing information about this cultural renaissance that happens during the Song Dynasty. And it shows how much of China's traditional culture still endures. Because even for me, my, common perce- my perception and I think the common perception is that so much gets lost due to the communist takeover in the 20th century. And and there's a lot that really sticks around. And it's really cool when he uh, goes on to explain why the city of Kaifeng primarily lingers on only in painting and poetry and not really so much in the, the physical remains of the city. And really what it boils down to is just how dramatic the Yellow River floods have been throughout history and the destruction that it's kind of wreaked upon the city throughout time. Yeah, highly recommend it. Definitely check it out if you guys are able to. But for now, that's all. I'm hitting 35 minutes, so I'm done. Talk to you guys soon. Take care, everyone.